Hello everyone, welcome to our weekly live Saturday broadcast. Uh, we've missed a couple of sessions recently where our intention is always to do it every week, but we've had some technical difficulties, which should get better, hopefully, um, now that we've moved to our new center. So as of yesterday, we are in one location, no more using a rental house to accommodate meditators. We have a one-acre property with trees and a house for the meditators and a big hall, a big meditation hall in the back. Uh, it's not finished yet, but it's ready for enough for people to move in. There's hot water, there's bathrooms, and we're up and running. Our grand opening is going to be October 31st, which is a Monday, specifically because we're inviting a bunch of monks and they have a hard time coming on the weekend. So I told them we do it on a Monday because we don't have any expected visitors anyway. That and also there's a, a group of people from Guelph who have a Monday Monday, they own a restaurant, and Monday their restaurant is closed. So they will be feeding everyone for the opening, grand opening. Anyway, so the grand opening will be October 31st in the morning. But we are open and already receiving meditators. We have people lined up to come for October through November. Even some people in November already, I think. But because it's um, because we have this location now, we can hopefully move the this broadcast to local once we get the internet set up properly. Um, we can have the crew here take over from Chris, who has done a great job doing it remotely from California. So Chris and I are not in the same location. We're doing this over the internet, and that seems to cause some level of uh, challenge. Okay, so as usual, at quarter after the hour, we'll start. So until quarter after the hour, we will do a silent meditation. You can do meditation as you like, walking, sitting, walking and sitting, lying if you can't walk or sit, standing if you can't walk, sit or lie down. Whatever is uh, suitable for you until the quarter after the hour.
Okay, we're back. Ready to answer questions? If you have any questions, you can post, continue to post them in chat. If you don't have questions, you can just sit back and practice mindfulness with us. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When walking while very anxious or stressed, and when it's not feasible to stop walking and note the stress, what's best to note? The walking or the emotions? Usually you want to notice any emotions you have first above anything else. They're just such a um, problem. I mean, they're there. Well, problems may be too strong a word. They're such a, an uh, impactful state of mind. They are the karmically potent mind states. So anxiety is karmically potent and leads to suffering as a result. So it's important that you note that it gets in the way of your practice, it gets in the way of clarity, it gets in the way of tranquility. It's called a hindrance. So it's best to focus your attention on that and try to become more familiar with it and understand it better so that it no longer consumes you. When walking in the street, I was instructed to note the walking and also to note all other predominant phenomena like thinking, seeing, drowsy, etc. Why are the rules different when doing formal walking meditation practice where you are supposed to ignore all the other phenomenon if you decide to keep walking or to actually stop to note the other phenomenon? And why isn't the street walking mindfulness described above considered true mindfulness? Can my mindfulness still improve from doing it? So there are no rules about this. Um, I, I think you, I'm not sure who you learned this from, if it was me or someone else. Um, but sometimes this is, this is a common thing, it seems, where it, it's like a game of telephone. We say, we give some instruction and the meditator interprets it and, and interprets it in a way that wasn't, expressed in the instruction so um just a few i guess there's a few things about this of course a very big question but that's the first thing is that it's not rules we suggest meditators during formal meditation to consider not stopping so we say you don't have to stop uh for every little thought you can just bring your mind back to the foot and keep walking otherwise You'll never walk. One reason is because you're walking quite slowly. Uh, another reason is that it's formal meditation. Um, so the the why? I mean, there's there's two answers to the why. One because we told you to do it that way, but um, and that's important because it's questions of why do we do things this way or that way. In general, can be problematic for um, focusing. So if you're always questioning why why does the teacher tell you to do it this way or that way, you're not actually focused on the present moment. It's best just to do it the way the teacher explains it, uh, unless in certain cases you have real issues with it, like it's causing you lots of problems. And and in the case where it does seem wrong, for example, of course, if a teacher teaches you something that seems wrong, uh, and you consider carefully that you really think it might be a problem, then Okay, it's fine to ask, but generally speaking, asking why is not very helpful. Best to just, because that's the way we told you to do it. 
but the, to to actually answer the question, um, it, because of the difference in formality, it's not expected that during the day you are f very formally accurate and and uh, precise in your mindfulness, especially when you're not doing formal meditation. So really, just try to note whatever you can when you're walking down the street. You can just focus on walking, but. When something else comes up, yeah, just try to note it. You don't have to stop walking because that would be ridiculous. Maybe you're walking down the street and there's other people on the street. You can't just stop and note. You can, but it's okay to just make do and note what you can when you can. So this is a common thinking that there are rules and it has to be this way or it has to be that way and trying to figure out why because it makes no sense that it should have to be one way or another. They're not rules. They're guidelines and it's just pretty reasonable i don't i don't think this is an unreasonable suggestion can your mindfulness still improve yeah your mindfulness can be improved i don't know that anyone i've ever said that street walking mindfulness is not true mindfulness mindfulness is mindfulness it either is or it isn't there's no true or fake no, it certainly is uh, true mindfulness it's not formal practice is all When noting, should one use a verb or noun? For example, sometimes when noting thinking, it's like I mindlessly just noted and it may continue. But when I note thought, I recognize that there is a just thought. That's not an important distinction. It can be either a verb or a noun. There's no problem with either. And I would caution against fixating too much on one or the other like one is better than the other it's kind of missing the point fixating on words obsessing over which words you use is a real dead end it doesn't lead to any good there's no benefit to finding quote-unquote the right word there it's not really supposed to be rocket science or linguistics or something use a word that encompasses the experience and that's it like in English, we say rising and falling, which is kind of ridiculous. The stomach doesn't rise or fall. It's just an English expression, one that makes it hard to translate it into other languages. Other other people, non-native English speakers, are confused as to what you mean by rising and falling. So, you know, if, if English can get away with something so imprecise, it's not a problem. It's just a little weird, and it's a problem for non-native English speakers. So words are not a big deal. They're just a tool. During meditation, I sometimes have feelings that I'm not sure how to describe and give a label to. I've just been noting them as feeling as I become aware of them. Is this okay? So if it's a physical sensation, that's when you would, I would recommend knowing, noting feeling. For an emotion, I would recommend trying to understand exactly uh, not exactly, but generally what it is. Usually it's some kind of liking or disliking. I mean, it generally falls into one of the categories of the hindrances, whether liking or disliking, or else it's worry or anxiety or restlessness. If you absolutely can't identify it, then it's okay to note feeling. It's not wrong. It's just I would recommend trying to be a little more precise than that because all the hindrances are vastly different. When I note, 
I become relaxed and somewhat enjoy it sometimes, and I'm not stressed as if there is a distance between the emotions or experience and witnessing. Is this possible? Well, anytime you say suggest as if, there's that's not real, right? So asking if it's possible doesn't make any sense. Um, it's as if there is a distance. I mean, the truth is you're not stressed. That's all. Uh, if you have a perception of some kind of distance between something and something else, then that's just a perception. You can just note it as that. Um, when you're relaxed, you should note that. When you enjoy it, you should note liking. But uh, it is, it's understand that there's a difference between experiencing and interpreting. So you saying that there's a distance between is just an interpretation that may be based on some kind of perception of distance, which is also just a perception. When a question arises in relation to Buddhism and the practice, should one note it and leave it, or should one make an effort to find the answer, even though the questions seem like distractions or excuses? Well, if they seem like distractions or excuses, then it's best to just note them. If, it's, if it seems important, you can write it down. I mean, if you're talking about during a meditation, formal meditation practice, you can maybe just write it down get in that habit, writing it down to look up later. Sometimes in deep meditation, I get a feeling of being sucked in by emptiness. It's such a scary and strong experience, it feels like dying, that I can't even note it. Any advice? Mm-hmm. So, under, again, this difference between experience and perception. You get a feeling, that's experience. Being sucked in by emptiness is all just interpretation. You don't get a feeling of being sucked in. You may get a tugging feeling, which would be the wind element, or the, the wyodatu, which is pressure. So there would be some kind of pushing, or, 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 or it can be pulling, but a tension of sorts. So you'll get a tense feeling, and that's just a, a, a sensation. Uh, thinking of it as emptiness or whatever. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I may be misinterpreting what you're feeling, but you have some kind of feeling and it's not being sucked in by emptiness. It may be some kind of pulling feeling mentally or physically. Um, and it can be strong. That can be an accurate description of certain experiences in the sense that they are very intense intense, very strong. There can be a strength to them. But experiences aren't scary. So that's your perception of it. That's your reaction to it. You react to it. As, you perceive it as something scary, meaning you're afraid of it, and fear arises. I mean, the ultimate reality is there's the experience, there, then there's the interpretation, then there's the fear. So fear is distinct from the experience itself. Experiences are not scary. Our interpretation triggers fear the arising of fear, uh, which can be associated with perceptions that you might be dying or that something is wrong or that something is strange. Uh, experiences that are strange or, or unexpected or, or novel, new, uh, is a sign of impermanence. And more, more, more clearly, it's, it's a 
broadening of your horizons. It's an opening up your mind to the potential for the unexpected. It's a becoming accustomed to, to life being unpredictable, which allows you, which helps you to let go. Impermanence is important because it frees us from the expectations and, and the need for stability. Um, I can't even note it is often caused by trying to note the wrong thing. Like in this case, you're afraid and the fear is preventing you from noting the other thing. What you should be doing, of course, is noting the fear. And usually the reason why you can't note it is because you're not noting what is directly in front of you. For instance, maybe in this case, the fear. How does one deal with the perspective that there are other sentient beings who are suffering and leaving them behind on the path of nirvana is unbearable? Is this just a perspective, or is there validity to it? Well, calling it unbearable, I guess, is an interpretation. Um, perspective. So the thought, I guess, will arise that there are other sentient beings who are suffering and that I am leaving them behind. So you have to appreciate what is meant by the path to Nibbana. The path to Nibbana is about letting go. So what you're talking about is a holding on. You're concerned, you're, you're attached to other people's well-being. And so there's never going to be a conflict here where you, you go on even though, even though you are attached to other people's welfare. Nibbana is, is freedom from attachment. So when you when you finally let go. So the path itself is not about deciding to let go or deciding to give up or deciding to abandon. The path is about seeing clearly. So the nature of the universe, the nature of experience is such that when you see clearly, you let go. So these kind of philosophical debates don't even enter into it. It's just reality. Reality is such that seeing clearly causes you to let go. In other words, there is no benefit, there is no reason, there is no logic behind holding on to anything. It's just intrinsically wrong. And we know this because we see it. When you see it through the practice, no one can convince you otherwise. It's just seen as it, it, it becomes clear that that's the truth. So the reason why you're not seeing it as the truth is simply because of lack of enlightenment. Once you become enlightened, then you will see that nothing is worth clinging to. You will see that for yourself. It won't be because I convinced you or anyone convinced you or because you convinced yourself. It will be because you come to see that actually that's the truth. And then there is no dilemma about letting go of someone or abandoning something. Almost all of my relationships are messed up lately because I've been mentally weak from life challenges. There's a chance it's going to hurt me financially. What should I focus on to get through this? Well, relationships are not real. They're just narratives. I mean, they can something. Sorry, to, to be clear, not something not being real doesn't isn't meant to trivialize it. So, it's just conceptual, and that's that doesn't mean it's meaningless. It's just important that you put it in perspective, and that 
it doesn't actually have any ultimate reality meaning that um what what there's something bigger going on in the background what's going on in the background is your reactions and your judgments and your interpretations of things so uh relationships being messed up is really just a perception of things being messed up and our perceptions are are largely dependent on our outlook and mindfulness helps to cultivate a positive or a objective outlook a wise outlook positive in the sense of being wise and so you're able to move beyond the judgments of things as being messed up as life being challenging and so on it's possible to be very strong in the face of challenges it just involves letting go and giving up your reactivity the judgments of things the clinging to things um so when you point out for example you, you give the example of it potentially hurting you financially shows that even though these things are not real the, we would we could say they can hurt you but the reality behind it is that there is at first there is no you to hurt reality is just experiences so the you that they hurt just means new experiences different experiences but uh second the chain you know the, the difference between having a uh, a wise outlook and having a deluded outlook has a has a very profound impact on all of the conceptual things in our life like relationships so rather so it's important to 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 to, to basically to put it very simply um we our relationships are are something that exists in our minds our idea of of our relationships with others how they how they uh, see us and we can become very fixated on on what we think of a relationship is but the reality can be very different and can and more importantly can change very quickly and depends very much on our perspective and our outlook so try and focus on mindfulness try and cultivate clarity of mind and take things rather than in terms of relationships like like suppose my relationship with my parents is messed up and they're very disappointed in me or even angry at me or not talking to me that's just as an example rather than thinking of it like i have a bad relationship with my parents try and see the present experiences that you have with them when you interact with them try and see them with wisdom and try and go through them with wisdom coming out of them with positive choices and beneficial choices wholesome clear-minded choices and, and never basically i'm saying never get bogged down in con concepts like the state of your relationship as an example or any of the concepts in the world just try and separate those conceptual things from your actual experience so when you meet with someone rather than carry around all this baggage of of what our relationship is what i've done in the past what they've done in the past uh, and that that has a very real impact on things like relationships and things like financial uh, 
um, stability as well. It, it, it can be subtle, but your life changes very much for the better as you are more mindful and more present. So try and make that separation and, and just stay with your experiences, be with your, your experiences, rather than worrying about the past or the future. Sometimes I am distracted when I practice, and it can stay long and doesn't go away. Should I use the distraction to see, for instance, non-self, like I cannot control this? Sorry, one second. So you've got the right idea. It's just that that's not really how this whole this all works. You're on the right track, but just to be clear, you don't use experiences um, as an opportunity, say, to reflect. So it's a common misconception that you should take time to reflect and think, oh yeah, that means impermanence, or that means suffering, or that means non-self. That kind of thinking can be useful if you're stuck, if you feel like there's a problem with your practice, like you have a lot of pain to reflect and say, well, that's, uh, I'm, that's the nature of suffering, that I'm suffering because I'm clinging. Um, when you're not able to, when your practice is different from time to time, from, from session to session, you can reflect and and remind yourself oh yeah no don't worry about that that's the nature of impermanence but the way the practice works is that over time you'll start to see that these sorts of distractions and and the the uncontrollable nature of the mind it will just lead to a familiarity with the nature of non-self as opposed to any kind of intellectual reflection you see so those kind of reflections can be useful but not um not inherently practically useful they're they're just a um sort of a meta practice an meta practice that allows you to refocus your attention it's a means of reassuring you but that's not vipassana so you don't use it to see non-self you will start to appreciate the non-self nature of things because of this unavoidable nature of the mind to not do what you want it to do that's how it happens. It's just becoming more familiar with the reality. It's not about using it as an opportunity for it to see this or see that. It, you will start to see. That's the whole. You, you, you're, what you're doing will allow you to see because of getting distracted when you intend not to get distracted. I've been sitting cross-legged for at least a year, and my knees are still high up. I've been using pillows. Should I start my sitting with some space between my legs and the pillows, like an inch or so? Some space between... Oh, I see. Uh, no, that's not a huge issue. Um, I mean, it's much more visible. The, the, the benefits are much more visible if you do intensive practice. Um, but there's no shame really in using pillows. One thing that I would recommend is to 
you don't necessarily need space between them, but find a, a happy medium where you are still experiencing some pain, but the, the pain is manageable. Because, of course, it is a temporary pain as you stretch out, but if you don't allow for any pain, you probably will never really stretch out. So you can start without pillows entirely, but you know, I assume that's not going to last long. But then put pillows just enough so that the pain is manageable. Try and see it as a challenge to use the pain as a meditation object as opposed to finding a way to not experience it. And as a result of that, you should find not only physically, but mentally you relax, because part of the tension is very mental, the, the aversion to pain, which is made worse by the avoiding of pain by using lots of cushions. So, yeah, some sort of happy medium. medium. I don't think it would be leaving a gap between it and between your legs and the pillows. It just means to have them lightly supported so the pain is less intense. I mean, obviously, if you can put up with the pain, you could just go without pillows, but it's more of a mental thing that you were not generally equipped to deal with that much pain. Through the practice, I feel much less angry, less stressed, and I worry less, which I am greatly thankful for. But I wouldn't say that I feel much happiness. Doesn't this practice lead to happiness? The practice leads to clarity. Clarity leads to happiness. So, yeah, it does lead to happiness, but... But there's a, it's complicated, because, first of all, you've got a lot of, let's say, bad karma you've performed in the past. I mean, I assume pretty much everyone does. If you were born as a human being, well, that's already some sort of karma because it's attachment. I mean, it's pretty impossible to go through life unless you're enlightened without accumulating lots of bad karma, especially if you haven't been induct inducted into practice of mindfulness, which is for the purpose of preventing the performance of bad karma. Um, but then on top of that, depending how much you're practicing, how mindful you are, there's going to be times where you are still engaging in unmindful activities. So the benefits are not going to be greatly pronounced unless you engage in some very intensive practice. You have to be content with mild benefits. Um, I mean, it's kind of silly to to describe things. I mean, as there, there's a problem with the way you've presented things, because I can ask you, you being less angry, less stress, and worry less, does that make you happier? No, is that considered a happier state than being very angry, being more stressed, and worrying a lot? You might argue that you don't feel pleasure, but pleasure is not synonymous with happiness. And I would say there's no question that what you have described is a far, far happier state than this, the, the alternative. And so the benefits may not be pronounced, and you, there might not be giddiness, and certainly not necessarily pleasure, but there is an incredible amount of happiness just being described in your question.
So I guess part of the answer is just re re reinterpreting what you mean by what should be meant by happiness. Because if happiness is synonymous with pleasure, well, you've got a problem because you're not going to always feel pleasure, and pleasure, furthermore, leads to liking and attachment and actual suffering. I mean, pleasure itself doesn't, but it it, it isn't free from that. And of course, you know, liking it is the problem. Wanting it, even. People in the invisible world are existing parallelly with us in this visible world. They can see us but can't talk to us. I often feel that my deceased mom is present with me. Is this correct? I mean, it's correct that you feel that way, but I would just try to note the feeling. If you're thinking about your mother, then you can note that. I mean, whether they are there with you or not there with you, giving, sending positive wishes for, for their well-being is always good. How can I become more austere? I sometimes am discouraged when seeing people who are very disciplined, whether it's in a meditative sense or in other ways, like people in a military boot camp, etc. Well, yes, that, that, I mean, that's one of the problems with comparing yourself to others. It's a kind of conceit that arises, uh, thinking yourself less than someone else, comparing yourself to someone else and feeling that you're, you're, you're inferior to them, you're inadequate, and so on. It's a real trap. It's not helpful. It's a pro it's a it's a bad practice. So you should try to note that and note the d discouragement. The only way to become something that you are not is to well, not that's not true. The best way to be to gain good qualities that you don't have is to focus on what you do have and and work through it. Because ultimately, all you need to do is get rid of that which is preventing you from being a pure and, and let's say, perfect being. This is why, you know, there's this talk, even in, Buddha, even in Buddhism, about us being perfect um, by, by nature. And all that's, the only problem is that which clouds that perfection. In Mahayana Buddhism, I think they talk more about it. But the Buddha, in, in the Theravada texts, he he says that the mind is 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 bright the mind is luminant it's a pure clear but it's only polluted by visiting defilements and so if you free yourself from the defilements then you've you've done all that needs to be done so rather than putting that brushing that aside the, the bad things aside and trying to be something that you're not like austere for example Get rid of the things that are preventing you from being austere, not that you have to be particularly austere, but to the extent that austerity is a good thing, you'll be much more inclined towards it if you free yourself from, say, greed and, and anger and delusion. How do you know that samsara exists? Samsara is just a word. The word exists. I mean, it doesn't actually exist, but the word exists in our conception of it. 
the concept of samsara as a concept doesn't exist outside of its conceptuality. But if by samsara you mean reality, well, say that reality doesn't exist is some pretty strong mental gymnastics. Pretty clear, practically speaking at least, that reality exists. We're not so much concerned about what exists and what does not exist. Buddhism is much more practical. Suffering exists, the cause of suffering exists, the cessation of suffering exists, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering exists. So not, not many meditation questions this week. I guess we've been away. I don't know if the audience is, well, we don't have as many people today. But uh, maybe if there's no more meditation questions, we can just end it there. We can end early. That seems to be the case, Bhante. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming, for tuning in and practicing with us. I wish you all peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. Have a good week. Father.